Well, I'm grateful to be able to bring the Word of God to you tonight and uh, invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The title of our message this evening is Motivation for Faithful Service, and we will be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Please follow along with me as I begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, which says this. Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible, and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, O death, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, as we come to our text tonight, I am reminded that we live in a society that is orchestrated to distract us from faithful service toward Christ. I'm going to say that again. We live in a world that is orchestrated to distract us from the faithful service we should have toward Christ. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that there is an evil one who is now working in the sons of disobedience. And we know that there is a course on which this world has been set that is influenced by the prince of the power of the air. And though we are sinful enough in and of ourselves to veer away from following Christ uh, wholeheartedly, the world around us is actively trying to divert us from glorifying Christ. And we find that with divisiveness, ungodliness, greediness, idolatry, mindlessness, and self-centeredness, just to name a few. When it comes to division, We are well aware that never before in our country have we experienced such division politically. And yet sometimes people are so concerned about where you're at politically that we are lured sometimes to be more concerned about the politics of this failing world than to be, as we were reminded this morning, concerned about the kingdom of God. And while there may be nothing wrong inherently about holding a certain political view, when that view defines you and the kingdom of heaven is an afterthought and your witnesses are lost because of that, it's a problem. This world is masterful at luring people into ungodly behavior. Promiscuity, pornography, sexual immorality is so common in our society that Though people are enslaved to it and their consciences are so calloused that they don't even, many of them don't feel the guilt of it anymore as they practice it, 
Instead of being ashamed about the behavior that they know in their heart is offensive to God, they they even claim to be proud of immorality. And there are two, two lies that immorality uses to lure people into a deceptive enslavement. The first one is, just do it once. This sin will somehow be worth it. And sin is never worth it. There is always consequence to sin. Though you may not feel it immediately, God is a just judge. And there are consequences to sin. The second lie is similar to the first. It says, well, you've already done it once. You might as well do it again. And so the entrapment begins. Ungodliness is amazing how in our heart of hearts we know that what we're doing is wrong and yet we fall to it. The world and its course tries to lure us. Greed. We think of greediness so pervasive in our society. The world just has this this idea that it permeates so much of our society that somehow more possessions, more wealth, more earthly gain would somehow bring you more happiness. And yet, in many studies on greed, including a recent one I read just this week, it was noted that though greedy people are known to have more money, they have less happiness. In an article written in a magazine regarding an online magazine about a study done in the Netherlands, those associated with greed have shorter romantic relationships, have fewer children, have a lower life satisfaction. And yet, there's this lure somehow in the back of our minds telling us that somehow greediness is worth it. Closely related to greed is idolatry. Idolatry is prizing anything more than your love for Christ. Could be a possession, could be your time. We live in a society that has many idols. Entertainment itself can be an idol. Laziness can be an idol. We live in a society where some people are lured into thinking that they might benefit more financially by not working than by working. Work itself could be an idol, though, on the other hand. We live in a society that is lured by an appeal to be mindless. Some people even prize drunkenness, the abuse of drugs, prescribed or not. Somehow the world passes mindlessness off as something good when it clearly is harmful. All of these are evidences of self-centeredness where people have believed the lie that they matter most. And if we're not alert to the subtle lure of this world, each and every one of these practices can not only infiltrate our lives, but we can bring it into the church and it can infiltrate the church. The world would like nothing more than to see believers distracted from holy living and faithful Christian service. And we know that these worldly traits can infiltrate a church because each of them was pervasive in the church in Corinth. This was a church that was full of divisiveness. They struggled with unity among themselves. This is why Paul begged them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the, mercy, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
we know that they struggled with godliness and that ungodliness was pervasive among them because there was great immorality in the church of Corinth, so much so that in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. We know that there was greediness in the church in Corinth because in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7, it says, actually then it's already a failure for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. We know that idolatry was pervasive in the church in Corinth because in 1 Corinthians 10, we learned that there were some in the church in Corinth who thought that they were so strong in their faith that they could partake in pagan idol festivals and that it wouldn't affect their walk with God. And this is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, therefore let him who think he stands take heed that he does not fall. And verse 14 says, flee from idolatry. We know that there was mindlessness in the church in Corinth because in chapter 11 it says, therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one says, for in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first. One is hungry and is another, another is drunk. For you do not, have, do not have houses in which to eat or drink or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. And we see that people had abused worship to the extent that they were using it for gluttony and drunkenness. In chapter 12, we learn that some thought, much like the pagan idol worship, that when it came to spiritual gifts, that the more ecstatic the gift, the more spiritual you would be. Or another way of saying that, the more you removed your mind from worship, somehow the more spiritual the experience was. We see that there was self-centeredness in the church in Corinth because in chapters 12 through 14, it says that the spiritual gifts were such a problem in the church that people were looking down upon others as though they were not as useful as they were or as important as they were in the church. And so Paul rebuked them by reminding them that all the members of the body are important and if we are all one member, where would the body be? And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, 1 Corinthians 12, 21. Again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So this church had major problems. They didn't get along with one another. They struggled to live lives that were pure and had godly character. They were confused about what true holiness actually was. And as a result, their views on all kinds of issues, including marriage and the roles of men and women and communion and spiritual gifts, they were confused. And so issue by issue, Paul addresses these in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he saves one issue towards the end of the book, one issue that they also had questions about, and the issue was the issue of resurrection. It's appropriate to have the longest discourse on the resurrection in the Bible at the end of the book because it serves as a motivation not only for holy living but also a motivation for service, diligent work unto the Lord. And it's one thing to say to people, do not involve yourselves in immoral behavior, but it's another thing altogether to give them the motivation that inwardly 
motivates them, challenges them, encourages them to live in a God-glorifying manner. It's one thing to say, do the work of the Lord. It's another thing to say, here is a truth that will encourage you so much that you will have an inward desire to share the love of Christ and carry out his work wherever you are. It's a positive motive. There are many motives in Scripture to follow the Lord. There is the motivation of discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. There's the motivation of instruction in 2 Timothy 3.16. There's the motivation of grace in Titus 2.11. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul chose to write about the motivation of the resurrection, a future resurrection. And the resurrection of the dead is one of the greatest motivations you can have to help you live the Christian life in a Christ-exalting manner. Christians are motivated to live holy lives by the power and understanding of the resurrection. One day, in the twinkling of an eye, those who are in Christ Jesus will be changed and our corruptible bodies will be transformed into incorruptible ones and death will have no sting. It was John Calvin who said, the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of the faith. Charles Spurgeon said, the resurrection of our divine Lord is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Perhaps I might more accurately call it the keystone of the arch of Christianity. For if that fact could be disproved, the whole fabric of the gospel would fall to the ground. The common understanding and participation in a future resurrection is enough to, make, to take two people who hate each other be so excited about what God will do in the future that they completely and genuinely forget about their past differences. The resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection is something, who could, something that could take a Jew who formerly used to take off his sandals when he left a Gentile area and shake the dust off his feet, but he could be transformed into a a Christian brother who would embrace a Gentile and dine with him. Something that the world would look at, in the ancient world would look at with wonder. What is this? What is this that would motivate two people who formerly hated one another to have such unity together? The more you understand about the gift of a new life, and a resurrected body in the future for someone who does not deserve it, the more you will be motivated to live a life that is full of gratitude and holiness rather than self-centeredness and bickering. In our passage this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking just at verses 50 through 58, we'll find two features of the future resurrection that will motivate Christians to diligently serve Christ. These are two features of resurrection that should motivate you to serve him more. The first feature is the illuminations of the resurrection, and the second are the implications of the resurrection. There are two illuminations we'll look at first in verses 50 through 57, and the first illumination is that there will be resurrected bodies for all believers. This is a mystery that is revealed or illumined to those who were reading it. And they had different views. But it says in verse 50, Paul writes, 
Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed, for this corruptible must put on the incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, this whole issue of resurrection in the book of 1 Corinthians was originally brought up because there evidently were some false teachers among them who denied that dead men would rise from the grave. They denied in a resurrection altogether. They were saying things like, when you die, your body simply rots, it goes to the grave. Though your spirit may live on, your body just decays. Seems as though they may have been influenced by some Greek philosophy of dualism, which was common in those days, saying that everything spiritual is intrinsically good and everything physical is intrinsically bad. And so therefore people could not comprehend that a physical body would be in heaven. In any case, Paul confronts that unbiblical teaching by reminding the Corinthians that every true believer believes that dead men do rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead. He says that in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ is raised. Paul goes on to teach that not only did Christ indeed rise from the dead, but he is the first fruits of many more resurrections. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And he uses uh, familiar language in verse 20 of chapter 15 when he mentions the word first fruits. In, in antiquity, in ancient times, in the first century, when you planted without the modern machinery that we have today, it was very evident where the first fruits were because the fields were large. And as you tilled the, 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 the soil by, by hand and planted the seeds by hand, it would often take weeks for a field to get planted. And so, obviously, when the harvest came about, the side that you started planting first was the one that showed the first fruits. And it was important. It was important for the farmer because it gave him a picture of what the whole crop would look like. It was just a glimpse at what the rest of the fields would, in a few weeks, look like. And so he would see them first, harvest them first, enjoy them first, give them to the Lord first. These were the first fruits. And when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, his was one of many more to come, the first fruits of a resurrection for every believer who would ever live. There were some, Paul anticipated, who might object. And in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? He deals with that issue in verses 36 through 49, and he begins to wrap up his teaching on the subject with a glorious and climactic victory song. But he does answer. He explains the skeptical question, and with what body do they come? You can just hear some of those in Corinth saying, well, how? I mean, if the body of my great-great-grandfather, which has been in the grave for all these years, How is that body going to heaven? What about somebody who dies at sea and is eaten by sharks? How does that body go to heaven? How can a body of flesh and blood, which has been buried and decomposed, go to heaven? And Paul responds in verse 50, 
He says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. And you can hear the skeptics say, aha, I knew that it would not be possible to have a bodily resurrection. But not so fast because Paul in verse 50 says, behold, look at this. I tell you a mystery. In biblical literature, a mystery is something that had been previously hidden or unknown, but now is going to be illumined or made clear, revealed. I tell you a mystery, verse 51, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Paul says, not every Christian is going to die. He uses a euphemism for death there, which is sleep, a common euphemism in the scriptures for death. He goes into verse 51, but all will be changed. The word changed here means to be altered, transformed. Could even be translated as to exchange. In fact, the same word is used in Romans 1.23 to speak about the sinful men who deny God as their creator and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So the, the, the word carries an idea of transforming from one form to another or exchanging one thing to another. And Paul says in verse 52, it happens in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. In other words, our bodies of flesh and blood will be transformed or exchanged for spiritual bodies that are incorruptible. Incorruptible. Someone once said, it's not death I'm afraid of, it's the dying. But in reality, we are all in the process of dying, aren't we? Physically, our bodies are corrupted. You might get a virus that corrupts your computer. And the longer you allow that to spread in your computer, the more files are affected, and eventually you might find that the computer won't even turn on. We have a virus in our physical bodies, and it is called sin. And as we get older, our bodies continue to become more and more corrupted, and we are dying. If it, I think of what it must have been like for Adam and Eve before sin, before death. There was no death before Adam, no pain, no suffering, which meant something changed in their physical makeup after they sinned. God was gracious, did not take their lives instantaneously, but when they did sin, they apparently, after they sinned, they started to die. Listen to Romans 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But according to 1 Corinthians 15, 52, those who have truly given their lives to Christ, if you have looked at your life and recognized your own sinfulness and that there is no righteousness in you and there is no way of salvation and that, and that you are a sinner and that you have no hope of redemption in and of yourselves and that your only hope would be if there was someone else who could make a perfect sacrifice for you, and God came down in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus came down and lived a perfect life. Therefore, he did not have to die. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified on, f to pay for the sins of those who would repent and turn and trust in Christ's righteousness instead of your own. 
and trust in, 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 in the one who broke the power of sin and death and was raised from the grave on the third day as a firstfruits of many more resurrections. When will this happen? When will we receive our resurrected bodies? Verse 52 says, at the last trumpet, which doesn't mean it's the last trumpet ever to be blown, but rather it's the trumpet that signals the end. It's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, which says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. You see, the Thessalonians had somewhat of an opposite problem as the Corinthians. In Thessalonica, there were some who thought that if they died before the rapture, they would miss the resurrection and, having, and, and, and being to be in the presence of the Lord. And, and so the Corinthians had thought that the, all believers would experience the resurrection, but it would not be physical. Some were saying that. And so when Paul says, we will not all sleep in verse 51, he's saying that not all believers will die because there will be a day when the Lord returns and he appears in the sky. Those who are dead in Christ, the graves will open, the sea will give up the dead, The Lord knows where every molecule is. This is God who created everything out of nothing. And he is able to bring together resurrected bodies coming up out of the sea, coming up out out of the graves. Those who died by fire. And God is able to put them together and give them new bodies, exchanged bodies, resurrected bodies. Those who remain, though, those who are alive at the time of the second coming will not die, but they will be given resurrected bodies in a twinkling of an eye. They will be raised up. They will be taken up with the Lord, raptured. And every one of our bodies will be changed into an incorruptible, immortal body. You say, what what will it be like? What would our... What would our I'm not so fond of my body. I don't know if I want to drag it around with me for all of eternity. It will be better than your body, but it will have some of the same characteristics, but it'll be different. It'll be exactly the same, but completely different. It will be like Christ's resurrected body, I presume, since he's the first fruits of many, and we read about his body, how it had many similarities. It's amazing, really. There were times where his body was recognizable. Mary thought he was a, sorry, there were times when it was unrecognizable, where people whom he knew on his pre-resurrected life didn't didn't recognize him. Mary thought he was a gardener in John 20, verse 15. The disciples on the road to Emmaus thought he was the only one in Jerusalem who didn't know what was going on. He said to Peter and John who were fishing in John 21.5, yelled out as a stranger from the shore, children, do you have any fish? They didn't recognize him. Other times, he was completely recognizable. When he said, Mary, in John 20.16 at the tomb, immediately she said, teacher. When he broke bread with the travelers on the road to Emmaus, and in John 21.6, Peter and John in the boat, 
And he yelled out, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find them. 153 fish later, John says to Peter, it's the Lord. Peter dives in. So there were times where he was recognizable. There were other times he wasn't recognizable. There were times where you could physically touch him. Jesus said to Mary in John 20, verse 17, stop clinging to me. Jesus said to Thomas, bring your hand here and put it in my side in John chapter 20, verse 17, and verse 19, and verse 27. But there were times where he could physically be touched and his body had physical attributes. So there are other times where he could enter rooms while the doors were still shut. John chapter 20, verse 19. He walked on this earth. He walked with those traveling all the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13. But other times, he disappeared right in front of them. Luke 24, 31, he vanished from their sight. He also ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 10, with two men in white clothing right next to him. Paul says in verse 52 that our bodies will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The word there for moment is a tamas. We get the word atom from it. It means uncut or indivisible, something that cannot be divided. In this case, it's a moment that's so brief that you can't find a smaller word to describe it. The smallest possible amount of time the time it would take for the sun to glimmer off of one's eye or for an eyelid to close and open. This is what the Bible teaches, and it is glorious that we will be raised from the dead. That's the first illumination we find in our passage. There's a second illumination we find in verses 54 to 56, and that is that all resurrected believers will triumph over death. The first illumination was that there will be resurrected bodies for all believers. The second illumination is there's a triumph to go with it. There is glory to go with it. There is a a joy and rejoicing to go with it. Look at verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Surely there's not a person here today who has not experienced, to some degree, or felt the loss that death brings. I spoke to a man not so long ago who had lost his wife after 63 years. Eight months after her passing, he said he still woke up in the night, reached over to feel for her and would say, are you all right, doll? I remember talking to a man whose 11-year-old son had been killed in an automobile accident. And he was explaining to me that he had to drive through the intersection in which his son had died every day on his way to work. And the pain that he experienced every day going to work. Our pastor, in his commentary on this passage, has written, death is the enemy of man. 
even for Christians. It, it violates our dominion of God's creation. It breaks love relationships. It disrupts families and causes great grief in the loss of those dear to us, end quote. But one day, Paul says, verse 53, this corruptible must put on the incorruptible and this mortal must put on immortality. And when that happens, we will cry out like the prophet Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. And we will shout like the prophet Hosea, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? Where is the sting of death? Christians will not feel the sting of death because they will be united in body and spirit with the one who matters most to them, the Lord Jesus Christ. For everyone who has fought the battle against death, it looks like either death has won or it soon will win. When you get that news from the doctor telling you that things are not good and you're head is spinning and you're wondering what does this mean is this the end and you're finding passages on the sovereignty of God to be more comforting than they ever have been any time in the past you will find this passage to be comforting because Jesus Christ paid the price the punishment for sin He paid it in full. He conquered death. And there is victory. If you have not repented of your sins, I urge you this day to fall to your knees and and cry out to God and ask him to save you. Repent of your sin and turn and trust in his righteousness, in Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross, which was a sufficient sacrifice, a substitution for you so that you could live and by faith in him, through grace, have life eternally and one day be raised again and triumph over death. Triumph over death. Victory, victory. The Lord Jesus Christ has raised me up. You will be shouting victory. This is why Christians do not grieve like those who have no hope, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Spurgeon told the story of a man on his deathbed to whom someone said, Farewell, brother. I shall never see you again in the land of the living. Oh, no, said the dying man. I shall see you in the land of the living, for that is where I'm going. This is the land of the dying. And it's because this is the land of the dying, the dying, Those who have eternal life, those who know about a future resurrection should live so differently that it should motivate you inwardly to have a passion for glorifying Christ, serving him today. There is a joy that is inexplicable. The victory that has been won for us by Christ should motivate us to live like Christ so that others can see his work of forgiveness redemption, and resurrection. When Paul says the sting of death is sin, he's, he's emphasizing a theological truth that is common in his writing. Someone asked me not too long ago, well, what does that mean, the sting of death? You and I are familiar with stings. I know a lady who was 
stung by a bee and her cousin told her, you think that is terrifying? You think that hurts? Dragonflies are much worse. It's a total lie. But she believed it until she was dating the guy she eventually married and panicked when she saw a dragonfly. There's no need to panic because there's no sting in a dragonfly. There's no need to fear death because there is no sting in death. I remember one night many years ago when I, when I was single, before I was married, I was uh, serving as a missionary in Central Africa and I was in a very remote part of the country and I lived in a simple quarters that had a tin roof and a brick building and, and uh, I had a visitor come and visit me so I gave him my bed and my mosquito net and I slept on the floor with no mosquito net on a thin mat and I was there uh, sleeping that night and a scorpion climbed into my bedding with me and on the side of my hip stung me twice in the middle of the night. I woke up to excruciating pain. And to make matters worse, uh, when I woke up and we were able to get some lights on, I, I uh, had been told by someone that if you took a stun gun and shock the place where you've been stung by a scorpion, that the electrical impulse of the stun gun will reverse the polarity of the poison and take away the pain. It's a total lie. Every chest hair I could muster up to do it, I shocked myself. Double pain. Double pain. I tell you this because when Paul talks about a sting, he's not just talking about pain from a bee or a scorpion. He's talking about death. The Septuagint translates Isaiah 25 verse 8, which is what Paul is quoting here, not with the word sting, but with the word destruction. You want to overcome death? You need to overcome sin because sin is the sting of death. And only Christ can overcome sin. Only Christ can pay for sin. And anyone who tells you differently, if they say things like, well, sin's not all that bad, or you can do enough good to make up for the, the, the bad, or sin is somehow worth it, those are lies that are way crueler than the ones that were told to me. Don't believe them. They're falsehoods. Like the poison of a deadly scorpion that causes someone to die, our sin permeates our bodies and leads us to death. It is potent. It is powerful. Paul says its strength or its power is the law. Verse 56, what does that mean? How is the the strength of sin or the power of sin and death the law? And why is Paul bringing up law to a congregation that is largely Gentile, without a Jewish background. Here Paul is writing to this congregation, and earlier I read from Romans 5.12. Let me read it again, it again with verse 13 to help understand how the law gives more strength or power to sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, Romans 5.13 For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. Imputed is an accounting term there. 
sin was not added or accounted. Before the law was given, all men were regarded as sinners, from Adam to Moses. And indeed, all men sinned. But until God's law was given, and it was actually understood the perfection that he requires, his holiness, which was revealed so specifically in books like Leviticus and Numbers that we've been studying. Until men actually understood them, there was no way to see the magnitude of their own violations or the depth of their sin. Just how many times each day you do sin. There was no way to keep an accounting of your violations against God. But when the law was given, you could see how offensive your sin was to God. If you're ever witnessing to someone and they say to you, yeah, yeah, I I know I should give my life to Christ. I'm just not ready yet. You know what their problem is? They don't recognize how offensive their sin is to a holy God. If their eyes were open to see how holy he was and how much he demands perfection and how much he demands that all sin be paid for, they would surely repent. And it's the word of God that can show them that. And we know this because God gave us his law and showed us how serious our sin is against him. You say, what what about people who haven't heard the law? Are they guilty of sinning? Yes. Just like somebody who goes to another country and doesn't know the laws there but breaks them, they're still guilty of breaking the law. The law points us to Christ. We need a Savior. Romans 2.14 also says, in Romans 2, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Everyone knows they are a sinner. Deep in their hearts, God's word tells us that everyone knows they're a sinner. They both have internal evidence and external evidence. And they can deny it. And they can choose to worship the tree rather than the creator. But it will end with the sting of death. Paul has already mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 at the beginning there, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So he's revealed in these verses that there will be resurrection for all believers and that resurrected believers will triumph over death. Those are the two illuminations. Let's look quickly now at two implications of the resurrection. Two implications, one in verse 57 and one in verse 58. The first implication is one of gratitude. Gratitude. Paul breaks out in praise and says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the change of tense in verse 57. 
Verse 51, we will be changed, future tense. Verse 52, the dead will be raised imperishable, future tense. Verse 52 again, we will be changed. Verse 54, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable. Verse 54, then will come about the saying. It's all future, future, future. But verse 57, thanks be to God who is giving us the victory, present, active. Paul was able to give praise and thanks to God for his life. And you are able to thank God today for what you know will happen in the future. And that gratitude is key to living a life that glorifies him. Not only that, we know that gratitude should characterize the life of believers. Because in Colossians 3.17 it says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. First Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Gratitude is something that should characterize your life. You could be going through the biggest trial any of your friends have ever heard of, and you should be thankful. Because death has no sting, and because God is in control, and he is good, and he is sovereign. And his name being magnified is what's most important to you. Plus, you should also know that gratitude is key to overcoming all kinds of traps that the, the world is trying to lure and get you into. Gratitude is the solution for anxiety. How do we know this? Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. Gratitude is the alternative to greed and immoral behavior. Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. But, immorta- but immorality or impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among the saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather give thanks. Titus 2, 11 and 12 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness. There is something about God's grace and future hope that we have that inwardly motivates you to be grateful, to find and trust in God's goodness. Gratitude is evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.20. It's an evidence of letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you in Colossians 3.16. And a lack of gratitude is evidence of a darkened heart that does not know the Lord. Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Romans 1.21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Gratitude is related to a future hope that we have based on what God has already done. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, we see a second implication in our passage. After 57 verses of talking about resurrection 
he has one verse on faithful service. He says, therefore, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The high point of his song, of his teaching on, on, on resurrection is when he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But so practical is Paul and his Holy Spirit-inspired writing that he cannot move away from the subject without mentioning the challenge that it should bring about to our lives, to the dear brothers and sisters that he knew, his beloved brethren. Not only are we to rebuke those among us who say that there is no resurrection from the dead, but it should motivate us and be loyal to the gospel that was preached to us, mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 15. Paul challenges us both negatively and positively. Negatively, he tells us, let nothing move you. Do not let anything move you. We see that challenge with the words steadfast and immovable. Steadfast literally refers to seated, seated, firmly planted. The idea is you are You won't be moved. And a stronger word, actually, describing something that is enduring or unshakable is the word immovable. Not the idea that you would be motionless in the work of the Lord. But these are words that you'd be so devoted to the work of the Lord that nothing would sway you from it. Remember that everything in this world promotes ungodliness. The world that we live in is masterful at trying to distract us from the work of the Lord. We can get caught up in those distractions. One writer in an article on leadership wrote this, most people tend to worship their work, to work at their play, and play at their worship. Worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. In reality, Worship should dominate everything we do. Brothers and sisters, do not let anything move you from a focus on gospel ministry and be abounding in it. Take a look at verse 58. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. This is the positive aspect of it, uh, the positive focus. Abounding. I love this word, abounding. It carries the idea of going beyond the requirements. It's the same word found in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 8, where it speaks of God lavishing on us the riches of his grace. We, that word lavishing, abundant, more than necessary. We tend to think of that when, when people offer us some, something that we really want. If they say, well, would you like some cream in your sugar? Yes, lavish amounts of cream uh, with my coffee. Uh, uh, lavish, like, you know, Coffee is a vehicle for cream. Give me all the cream I can get. Or they offer you a piece of cake and they say, would you like some ice cream? Yes, a lavish amount, an abundant amount, or whatever, whatever is your favorite. Maybe it's protein bars. I don't know what it is, but, but you, there are things that you want and you want them abundantly. God's grace has been poured out on you abundantly. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, lavishing on you the riches of his grace. And we are to abundantly be about the work of the Lord. To be about really serving him wholeheartedly. And one of the keys to doing that 
is to be mindful that what we look at around us is temporary. And the world fears death thinking it's the end. But those of us who have Jesus Christ and know him and have been redeemed, we have so much to look forward to. And life is so much more meaningful for us because it's not about us. It's about giving glory to his name and following him. And if you're having trouble with faithfulness, if you're having trouble with steadfastness, abounding in the work of the Lord, or with holiness, let the future hope of resurrection motivate you. Let's pray. Father, we know that Paul wrote the Corinthians and was concerned about them coming to faith in vain, that is, with no effect because they hadn't really believed. And we're grateful that we can know our labor is not in vain when our ministry, our service to you is motivated by resurrection and is steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Father, we've seen and heard your mysteries revealed tonight that those who trust in you will be resurrected, that we will be triumphant over death. May those illuminations result in the implications of gratitude and faithful service. Father, help us to be continuously mindful of the hope that we have in you. And may that hope motivate us during times of difficult service, knowing that there will be difficult times of trial and even persecution. But for those times, Father, use us for your glory and use the knowledge of that future hope to cause us to sing praises to your name and serve you with such loyal love that it bears much fruit for your name's sake. We pray this in the matchless name of the one who died for our sins and gave his life to sanctify us, to cleanse us, and to one day present us as holy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.